Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. We've seen studies of baby chimps and if they're not held when they're young, they will die. And that's a pretty interesting thing to think about. Being held and being touched by another chimp or by a human helped them thrive, you know. Uh-huh. And I feel like we lose sight of that as adults. Women in our culture, it's much more acceptable for us to touch and chat and hold hands and connect and lean on each other and hug. And with guys, especially older guys, it's not so much the thing, you know. Mm-hmm. I feel like the the younger generations have started to figure out, you know, co-ed touching is just fine and and it's pretty a normal thing. But especially the older people right now, older single guys, I I am in so much, hmm, I feel so much for where they are. I'm Srini Rao and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Doing creative work can be kind of lonely, and that's why we built the Unmistakable Listener Tribe. The tribe is a community for professionals to connect and support each other. Everything is designed to help you grow your business and share what's working and what isn't. And that's true whether you're a business owner or an artist. You'll get access to feedback, live conversations with guests, and so much more. By joining the tribe, you become part of a community of creators who all support each other, and it's completely free. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Visit unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe to join. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Rebecca, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Hi, Srini. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So as I was saying before we hit record here, there was one line in your pitch that was kind of the thing that made me immediately say yes. When I read the word I, phrase, I'm a courtesan, I was like, holy shit, I need to know more. But before we get into all of that, as you know, from being a listener, I like to start with weird questions that have nothing to do with your work. Uh, so I want to start by asking what I think is actually kind of a, a fitting question given uh, your story. And that is what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and career? You know, that's a very interesting question because I was one of those kids. I started high school as a bookworm, pretty unpopular. And then the next year I did some sports, which I felt really good about. So 
So I was kind of with the smart athletic kids. And then the year after that, I fractured my spine. And so I ended up working after school instead of playing sports. So I had a whole different friend group. (laughs) And then the last year, it was pretty much uh, honors classes and AP classes and stuff like that. So I feel like every year I had a different friend group. Uh, Uh It made it really easy for me to shift around and get to know different types of people. And I think how it's affected me is I'm just curious about people. You know, people come from all different walks of life and they've led different and interesting lives. And I like hearing about it. Yeah. What, you know, what are the lessons you took away from each group that you feel have shaped who you've become, what you've done and, you know, kind of how you see the world? From the athletes, I feel like there's a determination to do something spectacular, which I feel like that's made a big difference in my life. You know, just the idea that you can do something bigger and harder than you ever thought you could. Yeah. That's made a big difference. What do you think happens to us that we lose that determination as we get older? Because that's the the funny thing. I see so many people who want to do things, who talk about the things they want to do, but that determination changes, I see, with age, you know, and of course, you know, there are obvious factors that make a difference, right? Like lifestyle, um, certain things are just not possible, like you inevitably have an opportunity cost every decision you make. Uh, and I think people often don't realize that, you know, I think one of my favorite phrases I ever heard from somebody was that you can have it all just not all at once. <laughs> I like that. <sighs> so back to the question, what do you think it is that happens to that determination as we get older? Like, why do we lose that? I think we, I think there's two things that happens. I think one, we get it beaten out of us by the people around us who look at us and say, well, you know, you're not that special. So you really can't do anything that much better than me. So just sit down, shut up and learn your place. Um, and then I think the other thing that happens is we, we actually just forget why we're passionate about something. You know, we think when we're young, this is the thing that we really want to do and we're passionate and excited about it. And so we start moving in the direction of it. And then at some point, the dynamic changes and what we're getting out of it changes and what we really care about changes. And if we're not paying attention to that shift in desire, to that shift in curiosity and pleasure, then it can leave us, it can leave us out in this road in the middle of nowhere that we didn't know we were heading towards that has nothing to do with what we care about yeah so how do we get it back then how do we find our way back to the very thing that we wanted so badly well my answer is easy it's look for what pleases me look for pleasure and by pleasure i don't mean just the thing that kind of titillates you and excites you a little bit i mean the kind of pleasure that leaves you with more energy than before well, it's, so it's funny. Speaking of pleasure, like I just had um, Tal Ben Char here, the guy who basically runs a happiness course at Harvard, is kind of you know outside of uh, uh, Martin Seligman, probably the other godfather of this whole positive psychology movement, and he makes this really interesting distinction. Uh, you know what he calls sort of the four archetypes of happiness, and he said you know like you have this sort of hedonistic pleasure seeker, which you kind of see, you know, with people who do a lot of drugs, people who spend their time at places like Burning Man, you know, like this is their, you know, sole existence, but they have to keep seeking a pleasure mechanism because the pleasure doesn't last. So, you know, how do you find um, a sense of sustainable pleasure in your life without necessarily compromising every area of it? That's a good question. I feel like it has a lot to do with paying attention to fulfillment 
Because to me, pleasure and fulfillment really go hand in hand. But I think for a lot of people, they've been disconnected for a while. But real pleasure is fulfilling. And if you're having that kind of hedonistic pleasure that's, okay, this weekend is really, really fun, but next week I'm going to be paying for it and i got to find another way to, to excite myself the weekend after that, you're kind of missing the point of life, right? So for me, it's so much more fulfilling to have a group of my friends over for a dinner party where we all talk about life and curious things than it is to sit around and do drugs with people. I mean, nothing wrong with drugs. And (laughs) the fulfillment that I get out of it is very, very different. So So Uh, that kind of pleasure, fulfillment goes hand in hand with it. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about the trajectory that's led you to where you're at. Because like I said, uh, you know, like pretty much anybody I've ever talked to, courtesan is not on the list of things your high school guidance counselor suggests as a potential career path. So what in the world has been the trajectory that has led you down to what you do? <laughs> that's a very good question. Okay. So long story or short story? Long story, <laughs> always. Okay. So the long story is I grew up in a small town and had a really amazing boyfriend when I was in high school. And when we, uh, he graduated a year before I did, and we were separated by 1500 miles for a year. And that was really difficult. So he went and found this thing online called polyamory, which means many loves. And there was a book at the time that was kind of the polyamory Bible that's called The Ethical Slut. And he asked me to read it. And so we read it together and we started talking about it and thought, okay, polyamory could really work for us. Let's try it. So we did that and then had a great relationship for a while. Um, I ended up not seeing him anymore and then getting married and then getting divorced when I was 28 or 29. And as I was getting divorced, I was like, okay, am I still committed to this polyamory thing? Oh, yes, I am. Okay. Am I still committed to, you know, being being partnered? No, actually, I don't really want to be partnered right now. I just want to travel around and see the world and get to know myself again. So I started dating online, just, just dating. I wasn't looking for any kind of partnership or anything. I just wanted to see if I was still attractive and if people still found me interesting or if I'd lost all that in nine years. And I'd never dated online before. It was kind of about the time that online dating was happening. So I started dating and I found some really interesting people. And there was this one person who I was having a really beautiful summer fling with. And I was also in the process of moving out of my old house with my ex-husband. So I decided to uh, approach one of my girlfriends and see if she'd be interested in sharing a place together. And so we met at this beautiful park one afternoon and we're talking and making plans. And she said, well, if we're going to live together, you should know what I really do for a living. (laughs) And I was like, okay, what is it? I thought you were a therapist. And so she tells me, and I think the way she told me was basically the fun that I was having with that new lover was what she got paid to do. And I thought about that and I looked back at the summer and I was like, okay, that sounds too good to be true. I've got to look this up and do some research. And so I did. And I looked it up for uh, probably two or three months. I did a bunch of exploration and journaling and like, would I really like to do this? Would I feel horrible about myself afterwards if I did it? And finally came to this point where logically I thought this could work really well, but there's no way to know until I try it. 
So I made a deal with myself. I would try it once. And if I hated it, I would forgive myself and not look back. And I tried it and I loved it. It was so much fun. (laughs) And I said, okay, you know, I think I can make this work for myself. So that was how I got into the industry. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, this raises numerous questions, as you might imagine, um, I think that the first place I want to go with this is, you know, family, because I think particularly in a culture that I grew up in, 
Uh, I think that if any Indian girl went to her father and told her, this is what I am going to do with my career, I think she would be ostracized from the family. I think that that would be the ultimate test of the relationship that anybody would have with somebody in my family would be like, what? You know, because as it is, it's a culture of tremendous judgment, no matter what you do as a career. Um, I know this firsthand as a creative, but when you have to tell members of your family that this is what you've chosen to do with your life, what is that conversation like? What are the parts that are hard? How do you find a sense of acceptance among the people in your life who you know may judge you for these choices? That's a good question. For a long time, I was really only telling people who I was close to and who I knew well enough to know that they weren't going to be super judgmental. I probably lasted about a year. And then I started to be more and more open with it because I realized that I can't really have an intimate friendship or an intimate relationship with somebody that doesn't know something about my life that was so core to who I was. You know, yeah. It's not that I am a courtesan at my core, but I am curious about people and I, I am open about sexuality and I am you know, willing to go to unusual places with people. And, and that those are all important parts of me. And being able to do that in my work and not being able to share it with the people that I care about just didn't jive. So I started telling people more and more. I told my siblings first. Um, I did eventually tell my dad a couple of years ago. And my siblings almost all had the same reaction as well as most of my friends. They asked two questions. Are you safe? And are you happy? <laughs> and once they had satisf satisfactory answers to both of those questions, then... You know, they were like, okay, well, if you're safe and you're happy and I can tell you're happy because of the way you're moving about life, I can't really say anything about it. Uh, and so slowly they would start to, you know, learn more about what I actually did and how it was not really what they expected. And that was nice because over time, I feel like my friends and family have grown to respect this world in a way that they didn't before. Yeah. And my dad was a different situation. He, he never asked, are you safe and are you happy? Because I'm pretty sure he knows me so well. He knows there's no way I would do it if I wasn't safe and happy. <laughs> yeah. So what did, what did your dad uh, ask about this? And then uh, you, you said your, your um, siblings, after asking those two questions, kind of accepted it. And what I wonder and this is out of personal curiosity. I mean, you having heard the show may have heard her interview with uh, Sarah Vandella, the adult film star. And <clears throat> what I wonder uh, is what are the misperceptions from the outside that people might have of the kind of work that you do? And what do you want them to know? The misperceptions are easy. I think people assume that my work is all about the fucking and it almost never is. <laughs> and uh, I think they also assume that people end up getting into this industry because they don't have any other choices. Yeah. And I know a lot of women in this area who this is the best way for them to be really connected and happy, attentive parents, you know. Um, uh -huh. And of course, I can't share any of their names because that could get them in trouble. But yeah, it's a really beautiful world once I got into it. There's so much more care and like actually trying to see each other for who you are 
that's probably the biggest misconception. People don't realize when you have your clothes off, you're a lot more open and intimate than you think you are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the absolutely like, it, okay. So that, that actually is another question. What role do you think media plays in creating these misperceptions? Because you know, to your point, you know, whether it's in the movies, whether it's on TV, the way that, you know, sex workers are portrayed is largely as, as victims of, you know, horrible shit that's happened to them in their past, um, having no alternatives. So we're, at least in my mind, that's what I see as media portrayals of, of sex work. But um, what role do you think the media plays in creating that perception? And what do you think is the responsibility of people who create media when they're talking about this to people like you? Like in this moment, what is the responsibility I have to my audience when we're sharing this story? That's a good question. I think media definitely has played a big role in the perception but to be honest, I think it goes deeper than that. I think it's deeper than media because media is really just they're creating a character that people will relate to and people will be able to understand. So they have to play off of what is already in the culture to some extent. I yeah. think, yeah. So I think what really is the root cause here is more religion, especially in the U.S. Yeah. So we have a culture that is based on puritanism and on the idea that you know, sex is not really for enjoyment. And if you have a porn addiction or something like that, you should be ashamed of yourself. Just, you know, there's so many pieces of the dominant religions that we have here in the U.S. that make sexuality and everything related to sexuality and money feel like a, like a dirty thing, you know, like you're mm -hmm. not supposed to do it and you should be ashamed of yourself or somebody should be ashamed of themselves. Yeah. And then that yeah. goes up in movies. But. Mm hmm well, let's actually talk about that because I think that I've always said the irony of being raised, you know, in our culture is we literally write a manual on sex that is sustained for hundreds of years, yet we come from one of the most sexually repressed cultures in the world. Um, you know, it's it's funny. I mean, and I've, I've talked about this on the show before. I remember the first time I saw my parents kiss each other, I was probably 28. And I was like, oh, I'm like, I wish I could unsee that uh, because it was just one of those things where we didn't ever talk about it. Uh, you know, I remember to this day, my sister explaining to me her version of the sex talk, which was the strangest thing. She said, yeah, she was about to go to college and my dad called her to his office and she's like, oh God, she's like, he's calling to the office. Like that's a, and she knew right then and there that this is what she was getting into. And he literally basically went on this hour long spiel about all the things that I did wrong at Berkeley. He's like, your brother was an idiot. He got bad grades. Don't replicate, you know, what he did do well, by the way, we don't believe in premarital sex. And he just moved on from that. That was it. He's like one line. Uh, so I, I want to actually talk uh, about the role that parents play, uh, uh, you know, in educating their kids about sexuality, the role that schools plays. Because even when I was talking to, to Sarah Vandella, I told her, it's like, the extent of sex education in school is watching sperm swim under a microscope. Like, you don't actually learn anything about the reality of sex. And I remember watching this Michael Moore documentary where they were talking, uh, teaching, you know, sex education to uh French school children. And, and, you know, in contrast, he had this, um, you know, media clip from the US where some governor in Texas was talking about abstinence. And he was like, abstinence works. He's like, what do you mean abstinence works? You have the highest teen pregnancy rate in the country. So, I mean, let, let's start there. Like, where do we, how do we begin to change how we're educating young people about sex um, and, and teach them to stop seeing it as this thing to be ashamed of? Because I, I can tell you that I think I felt v very uncomfortable about this for 
a very, very long time. I mean, I left college without ever losing my virginity. I was like, how does that even happen? You know, um, to me, that was like one of the things that I was ashamed of for years. Yeah, that's a pretty in-depth question. I think, well, so knowing a little bit about my history about sexual education might be helpful here. So I grew up in a very small town and we had, for some reason, because of where we lived, we had access to really fantastic teachers, even though we were a super small school budget. And one of the teachers there was, I don't know if it was one of the teachers or someone who was a mom of one of the kids, but she was a nurse. And so in high school, after seeing the health education, the sex education that we got in gym class, she decided to hold an after-school month-long optional sex ed thing. And I think it was two days a week for four weeks. And anyway, she spent two or three hours each time educating us about STIs and about pregnancy and about you know how important the decision to have sex is and doing role playing and things for the most part it was pretty fantastic training there was one piece in there where they uh did this gum thing where you like pass your gum around to other people and then that's how you think about having sex with how many other people have been chewing your gum which i would not encourage that in any sex education <laughs> um, a little bit of slut shaming there without realizing it uh but other than that, you know, I learned so much about the options that were there. And the, the thing that I learned that was most important is that when it was going to matter, I probably wasn't going to take the time to make a decision. So I needed to make a decision about what I was going to do before it mattered, before I wanted to, to take any action. So that was super helpful. Like even as an adult, I'm sure there are most other women out there are doing the same thing too. You know, you know how the date's going to end before anything happens um yeah. and you're prepared for that right or at least i am so so i think that kind of sex education would be much more useful so what do you think that parents should be telling their kids about sex i think just being real about sex is probably the best the best way of approaching it i think most parents are pretty uncomfortable talking about it themselves so yeah um but there's a certain amount of honesty in that kind of authenticity. Uh, the other thing that was really helpful for me is I found with that high school boyfriend and I, we were both engineers and geeks. So we went and found a website called sexuality.org, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was run by a group of people in Seattle who had uh, a sex positive club. I think it was called The Wet Spot. And so they created sexuality.org. It was almost all text-based. And it was all about sex and sex safety and kink and kink safety and STIs and polyamory and all this other stuff that, you know, just information that you needed to know. But the fact that it was all text and it was really well organized and that you could kind of pick your own adventure and see what you needed to learn about that day. My boyfriend and I used that so much. <laughs> we learned a lot from that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, this, I guess the other, the other question um, that I want to ask you is, what do you think men don't know uh, about women uh, that they should, particularly in this context? Because I remember, you know, I, I did some work with a dating coach, Nick Notis, who's also been a, a guest here on the podcast. And one of the things that he was telling me about was how, you know, 
that the Me Too movement was a very important conversation that needed to happen, but he was having a challenge with a lot of his clients where they were getting scared to even initiate any sort of physical contact because they were so scared of being accused of something or being seen as like a pervert or, or something. And I think that even when you read, you know, the story of which, you know, Izzy's and sorry was accused. You, I think almost all of us who are men, we looked at that, like trying to think back to our own dates, like, wow, are there moments where I crossed a line or pushed the line to where I made somebody uncomfortable without even realizing it? Yeah. It's a tough thing to go back and look at, isn't it? Yeah, it's an incredibly tough thing to look at because, you know, I, I talked to my own roommates about this. We're all stand up guys. We're not the kinds of people who would intentionally hurt anybody or do anything awful. But then it's hard not to to look at, you know, your own past experience and wonder if there are moments where you behaved in questionable ways. And, you know, you kind of like, thank God, social media didn't exist because nobody could broad, go and broadcast this to the world. But I guess, the, you know, back to the question is, is what do you think that men don't know um, that you want them to know as a woman when it comes to um, having a sex positive attitude and yet at the same time being respectful of women's boundaries? I think an important thing here is that women change their mind very, very quickly. And if you don't have an open line of communication, I feel like that's where things get really, really sticky. And and there are people that just don't want to have open communication about this, which is difficult for me because I'm someone who, hey, if we're going to do something, then we're also going to talk about it. If we can't talk about it, we're probably not mature enough to do it, right? <laughs> yeah. And so um, the fact that one, the woman that you're with might look like she's all in and then all of a sudden something feels different. I think most men are not going to notice the feel different right away. Most women do. And so they assume that the men do as well. So yeah. knowing that it will change really quickly and have an open line of communication so you can find out if it has changed, that's probably my best tip. Okay. Um, well, let, let's do this. I want to talk specifically about uh, relationships. Now, <laughs> that's funny because, you know, you look on certain dating websites, there's a dating website called Meet Mindful. And, you know, there's a section that basically says not for me. And the amount of times I've seen polyamory in the profiles I've clicked on, <laughs> I would say 90 to 100%. And, and in all honesty, I think I probably fall into that category as well. Like, I think it would be very, very difficult for somebody like me. Because I remember uh, even talking to Sarah Vandella, I said, you know, when you're, somebody is, is dating you, somebody's in a relationship with you, I'd imagine they'd have to have bulletproof self-worth to be able to be okay with knowing that this is the line of work. So I wonder, one, do you have actual relationships outside of the people who are your clients? And, and what do those relationships look like? How do they function in a way that's emotionally healthy? And you know, what does it take for somebody to even be able to handle this? Because like I said, I don't think that I have the kind of self-esteem that would make it easy for me to go through this. Like it sounds nice in theory and fun, um, but I think in reality, I would probably be like, no, this just isn't for me. Yeah, that's perfectly understandable. It, it is definitely a uh, pretty big self-growth challenge to step into polyamory. It was something that I was up for, though, and I, I chose it when I was 19. So I feel like at this point, I've learned not everything, but I've learned enough that I'm really, really comfortable in polyamory, and I'm really happy, and I find that that is the, the best way to get all of my needs met over the long term. I'm actually a very partner-focused kind of polyamory. So I do have relationships out of work. And I always have. 
And I find it to be really important. I find that my non-work relationships do take priority over work too. So on the occasion when they're fighting over my time, it's pretty easy for me to decide what to do. When it comes to the people that I date having to have bulletproof self-confidence, that's probably pretty true. And I think the fact that I have pretty strong self-confidence to begin with means that that's who I match up with more often than not anyway. But uh, there's a an article that I read on Facebook years ago. Someone else had written a How to Date a Sex Worker article. And it was so lovely. There were a couple of pieces in there that I just had to share. I've shared it with everyone that I've dated since. One of them was, when I have a bad day, don't try and talk me out of my career. Because <laughs> there are occasionally days that are just not as good. You know, Sometimes you forget your chapstick or something and you're just not as comfortable. It's just not as fun. That doesn't mean, you know, you should get out of the business. And maybe it does. Maybe it does for you. But my bad day versus most people's bad days, very, very different. (laughs) Very mild, I think. Um, And then the other piece that I found really important out of that article was, remember, she's coming home to you. She's not asking you to be anybody different She's coming home to you and think about what that means for a minute, right? So this is someone that gets paid to entertain people and she wants to spend time with you. The more you think about that and the more you realize that's true and the more you're with the partner and they're totally present and they really like, you know, your company and their body responds to you really well, that develops bulletproof confidence, I think. (laughs) A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great 
great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you specifically use the phrase, this is somebody who gets paid to entertain people. And earlier you said it's not just about the fucking. So I want to go deeper into that. Um, you know, I had asked Sarah Vendel a, a similar question you know, because she had mentioned she she works at the Mustang Ranch outside of doing adult films. And I said, you know, what misperceptions do we have uh, about the kinds of people who are, are your clients? Because I, I think, again, we go back to media perception. What do we do? We see we basically say, oh, the people who end up in places like this are lecherous old men who are perverted. But, you know, I mean, she kind of shattered the perception of that. And I'm curious kind of what your uh, own experience of that has been. Like, what are the types of people who come to somebody like you or come to somebody like a courtesan? Yeah. Well, my client base is pretty much split about four ways, not quite equally. So there are some of the, I think what people would typically expect, the middle-aged men who their marriage is just sexless now and they need to find some way of having that connection. They love their wife. They don't want to leave her. They don't want to cheat on her. They don't want to have someone texting them in the middle of night because they're having an affair. They just, they just need to be listened to and to be felt and to be like a man for a little while. So that's a common person. I think the the people that you wouldn't really expect though are the younger younger guys. Like you mentioned, the Me Too movement. I've noticed in the last two years or so, I've gotten a lot of guys in their twenties and their early thirties that have come to see me, which didn't happen before. It was almost all people in their 40s and over. And they've been coming to see me and telling me, yeah, it's just, I'm not really sure about dating right now. And I just kind of wanted to get some practice with someone who wasn't going to sue me or <laughs> was <quite laughs> likely to tell me that that was too far instead of you know posting it all over social media that I did something. Um, so that's been pretty interesting, getting to know that new market. And then I also have a pretty big chunk of people that are in their, you know, forties that are really career focused and they just don't have the time or the mental space for a relationship, but they do really want to have connection and they want to have connection over the long term. So I have people that have been seeing me on a regular basis for two, three, four, five years, just so they can have that connection that knowing that somebody sees them and that physical intimacy and have a place for that, a place where it fit. Yeah. 
So I think it's fascinating that you talk about connection of all things. So let's go back to, you know, the married guy who was in a sexless marriage. Does that person actually tell their significant other that they're seeing you? And how does that play out in the marriage? It depends. Some of them do. I think the majority of them don't. Some of them do. And uh, I do live in a town that is pretty open about sexuality to begin with. So I think that's probably why some of my clients actually have been able to tell their their partners, hey, this is what I'm doing. And oftentimes the partner's like, all right, well, don't bring home any diseases. Don't bring home any babies. <laughs> and don't embarrass me, okay? And yeah, that's that's perfectly reasonable. Okay. It's interesting because I think that, you know, we go back to religion, you know, there are some people who immediately be like, all right, well, there's a question of morality here. Like, are you cheating on somebody when you're doing that if you're not telling them? Yeah. Honestly, the answer to that question, I think, is yes. And it's kind of none of my business. So uh, I do end up talking with this about a lot of clients oftentimes, and I've actually talked a couple through figuring out how to tell their partners, you know, what they felt they needed to tell them so that they could be in integrity again. And that has been an interesting journey to to watch that. Yeah. But yeah, every yeah. Really, their relationship. I guess the, the I guess the the interesting thing for me then is the question of um, for you, do you ever feel that you're crossing a, a line of morality when you know somebody comes to see you without necessarily telling their partners? Uh, you know, knowing that potentially like if the partner were to find out it could end the relationship. And again, no judgment on my part. This is just out of curiosity. Yeah. I feel like the fact that I just have a website and they have to come and find me and they have to book with me takes a lot of that away. Well, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't feel responsible. If I was to reach out and try and seduce them into spending time with me, I would feel different about that. But the fact that they've yeah. already made the decision themselves, they've just, they're just finding out who they want to spend time with, but they've decided. Interesting. All right. So let's talk about the entertaining and connection piece, because I think that, again, you know, like <clears throat> on the surface, probably for a person who doesn't necessarily fall, you know, onto this end of the moral spectrum might say, okay, that's immoral. That's unethical. This can't possibly be about entertainment and connection. So, um, when you say connection, what do you mean by that? Like, what what does that look like? Uh, and then the other question is, when you have sex with somebody who comes to you in this context versus sex with a potential with, with an actual partner or somebody you're in a relationship with, how does that? How do those two things differ? Hmm, they're not that different. I think. People assume that I don't usually have any kind of emotional involvement or positive regard for my clients, and that's that's totally not true. So I, I actually do love some of my clients, and so when we're together in bed, it doesn't necessarily feel that different from being with a partner. And, and maybe that's because in my personal relationships, I'm also a pretty strong and independent person. So I don't feel like the wilting violet that needs to be taken over kind of thing. I don't know if that that makes any sense, but yeah, it, it is different, but it's not that different. Oftentimes sex with clients is as good or almost as good as sex with my personal partners. 
Okay, interesting. Um, so then I, I guess the other question around that, right, is you mentioned you love your clients. So the question for me then becomes, you know, how do you make that sort of distinction of preventing somebody from basically falling in love with you um, and developing an emotional attachment, you know, to you that at some point becomes unhealthy or, uh, you know, is just not, it, it basically, they want to move it to a place that it's never going to go. Yeah. Well, I found that over the course of the last couple of years, the easiest way for me to deal with that is be really clear upfront as early as possible. So I have things on my website. Don't expect any time that's not being paid for. Um, I have, you know, pretty clear expectation setting there. And then when they do come to start seeing me, if I notice that someone seems to be having a bit more attachment, I will call it out and I'll talk to them about it because the earlier you talk about it, the better. Uh, However, I don't actually have a problem with people falling in love with me. I am totally okay with my clients loving me. I am not okay with them trying to change me or save me or get me out of the business or tell me what to do or impact my personal partners. Um, but for the most part, once someone gets to the point where they're like, oh my gosh, I actually, I love you. They know me well enough that they know trying to change me would not work and it would be detrimental. So I've probably only had one person who got a little attached and I was able to say, this is not really going to work. I would yeah. like you to go and see some other ladies so you can spread out your curiosity. And that worked really well. So, How much work, how common is this? Like how common is the work that you do? Because again, you know, it seems to me like the sort of underworld that's hidden from main society, both from the side of the people who work in it and the people who patronize it. I don't know if I can say exactly how common it is, but I know it's a lot more common than you think. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've actually had many people say, oh, I've never actually met a courtesan before. And <laughs> sometimes I will actually say this out loud. Usually I don't, though. I'll say, well, you mean you've never actually met someone that told you they were a courtesan? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, like I said, that was the the line in the bio that immediately got me. I was like, oh, hell yes. I definitely want to talk to you because I was just so curious about this. Um you know, so one thing I wonder then, let, let's talk about this in the context of political and legal structures. You know, there are countries in the world where sex work is completely legalized um, and, you know, it, it's not sort of, I, I think the stigma of it is still there, uh, but it still exists. It's not this sort of underground thing. So when you look at sex work in the United States and the fact that it is kept underground, what do you think needs to change in terms of, of you know, political and legal structures for sex workers um, that basically would make the whole thing better for everybody involved? Yeah, well, that's actually why I'm here on your podcast. <laughs> um, so I think with the political and the legal structures, first of all, I am not a super knowledgeable activist. I have friends that are super knowledgeable activists, and they have told me what really matters is decriminalizing. If it's legalized, the state still has some control over what you're allowed to do. So if it's legal, then they may or may not be able to have anal sex and someone else gets to decide. You don't, right? But if it's decriminalized, you can't get in trouble for it, which is way better. So yes, that's what I would say. I actually had the opportunity to meet with a woman who was a sex worker in New Zealand 20 some years ago. And she was one of the women who helped push New Zealand to change the law. So it's decriminalized in New Zealand and they have like a sex worker version of OSHA. Um, 
actually, I think they have the version of OSHA over there, which is just general work health and safety. And they had specially trained those operatives on how to deal with sex work, work and safety. (laughs) So I thought that was really neat. You know, they were able to spread out the, the burden of maintaining a healthy sex work industry through the different, through the different associations that were already there. So I wonder, if we were to decriminalize sex work here in the United States, what do you think the impact would be, not just on sex workers, but on sort of the cultural narrative around sex positivity? If it was decriminalized right now, I think there would be a bit of a very difficult war. (laughs) (laughs) As it's decriminalized, the people that are like, oh, hey, I'm loud and proud. I'm going to come out and be this or just going to be out there taking off the fundamentalists and people who really believe it's morally wrong and everyone who does it would be in trouble. Um, So my preference, I think that the best way to work around this, yes, definitely move in the political and legal arenas. But what I've been doing for the last few years is just sharing with my friends and family about what it really is about, because it's not this, at least it's never been for me, this thing where I feel exploited or taken advantage of or any of that. And in fact, some of my closest friends are clients and a lot of my non-work-related friends don't know them, but some of the people that are the closest to me and that have helped me through some really incredible things in my life and in my business are clients who I only know only when we spend time together. Yeah. Well, so speaking of difficult things, I mean, in your own life, I, I can't imagine that, you know, any path for, for that matter, like whether it's, it's somebody I've talked to who has built an incredible business or somebody who does something that you do, there haven't been difficult things and hardships. What, what are the challenges? I mean, outside of you know, telling the people in your life that this is what you do, what are the difficult things about this that most of us don't ever realize? And then one other follow-up to that is, you know, you uh, have talked about this from the standpoint of I'm not a victim. I'm not, I'm doing this out of choice. But on the flip side of that, you know, and I asked Sarah this as well, you have people who come out of these situations just battered, broken, beaten up and taken advantage of, uh, and they don't look back on it as a positive experience. They don't have the attitude towards it that you have. Yeah. So how does that happen? How that happens is that they don't feel like they have a lot of power in the situation to begin with. And when you feel like you don't have power, I mean, how can you really choose something that's going to work for you. I mean, one of the reasons my experience has been probably so different from what's expected is that I have always only ever done this because I wanted to. I always only see clients that I want to. Um, So it, it makes a huge difference when you're a fuck yes for opting in for what you're doing. Uh, And I think anybody that's not a fuck yes should really not be in the industry. And when it's illegal, I think it makes it more difficult for people to get out of the industry because then there's, you know, something someone can hang over your head and you have to go and admit that you've been doing it in the first place in order to get into some of the programs. And yeah, I don't know. I just think it's a, it's not a great situation, but when your understanding of your power and knowing that you have all of the choices, that, that makes a big difference in the dynamic, at least it has for me. And so I, I hope that other people are able to see that and experience that. And I don't think anyone who is not a hell yes for this should be in the industry. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think yeah. there was the it, first question there, which I missed. 
Sorry. Yeah. So um, in your own life, I mean, I don't imagine it's all been smooth sailing. Like what have been the the difficult and challenging experiences outside of, uh, you know, letting the people in your life know that this is what you've chosen to do? Like what parts of your life have challenged you and, you know, what moments of adversity have informed where you've ended up and, and kind of shaped it, shaped all of it? I think the most important piece there is actually something that a lot of entrepreneurs run into. It's the being out of sync with the rest of the world. Because I don't go in at 9am and come home at 5pm. I sometimes work on the weekends, not as often as people think, but uh, I have a lot of time during the day. And so I've had to find different ways over the years to keep myself engaged and keep myself connected to my friends who have completely different schedules than I do. Yeah, I think that's the hardest part is being out of sync with people and the isolation that can come from that. Yeah. So, you know, the the funny thing is you have this incredibly uh, healthy take towards all of this. I guess, you know, what I wonder is, you know, if we were to basically, you know, change the narrative to one of being sex positive, because I don't feel like the predominant narrative in the United States is necessarily something that is that is sex positivity. How do you begin to change that in an entire culture where, you know, Puritan values have been so deeply woven in and embedded into us for so long? I think the key there is accepting, accepting our desires and accepting what's real. And it's going to take a little while for that to happen. But I feel like I don't want to hop on the, the bandwagon with the LBGT crowd, but it does seem like the more understanding there is, the easier it is for people to be, I don't know, just, just be open and curious and listen and listen to what's actually going on. So I, th- I think that's the key. If we can get people to talk to each other and listen and to understand their own desires and be willing to at least explore them, they don't have to go out and make them happen. But mm-hmm. knowing why you care about things, why something excites you or arouses you, that can be very empowering. And that, in my mind, shifts the conversation around sex from, oh my gosh, this is a dangerous thing and I really shouldn't play with it, to oh, hey, I'm in control here. Let's see what could be fun. Yeah. And so, you know, one thing you mentioned when you wrote in was the fact that we've now, thanks to this whole shit show of a pandemic, entered effectively what is a, a touchless society. Uh, you know, and I, I remember, you know, I, you know, in the spirit of transparency, some friends and I were doing ecstasy one night and uh, the the girl that my roommate was dating, it, like, I remember she was touching me. She was like, Oh my God. She was like, you have been so touch deprived, haven't you? And I remember reading uh, a book called The Body Keeps Score and how he talked about the role that touch plays and and massage plays in healing trauma. And I never made that connection in my head because, you know, Indian parents, you know, are not necessarily the most physically affectionate people. You know, my six months of therapy, I discovered that my primary love language was physical touch. Um, And yet I, you know, grew up in a culture where that is not that common. And so I want to talk about that in the context, not just of the pandemic, but like what role does all of this play in our health and our our happiness? And, and, you know, when people don't have partners, um, when they're not having sex, what do you tell them? Right now, what do I tell them? I tell them, yeah. uh, see if you can go and find a sex buddy. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. I mean, being someone who talks so openly about this stuff, that really is what I do is talk about, hey, do you know how to negotiate with someone so that you can have what you need? And even if it's not someone that you're totally in love with right now, maybe it's just a cuddle buddy or something, but we all do need to have some kind of touch. And I'm I'm particularly uh, aware of the people that are living alone these days because I live alone. And there were, I don't know, six weeks at the beginning of the pandemic where I was on crutches, living alone in my two-story apartment building. And that was really, really tough. Um, you know, we've, we've seen studies of baby chimps and if they're not held when they're young, they will die. And that's a pretty interesting thing to think about. Being held and being touched by another chimp or by a human helped them thrive, you know. Uh-huh. And I feel like we lose sight of that as adults. Women in our culture, it's much more acceptable for us to touch and chat and hold hands and connect and lean on each other and hug. And with guys, especially older guys, it's not so much the thing, you know. Mm-hmm. I feel like the the younger generations have started to figure out, you know, co-ed touching is just fine and and it's pretty a normal thing. But especially the older people right now, older single guys, I I am in so much hmm, I feel so much for where they are. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, for your own work and in your own line of work, I'd imagine that this whole situation has affected the line of work. Like, how does it change, you know, safety? How does it change what you are and aren't willing to do? Because, uh, you know, how do you know, you know, where people have been, who they've spent their time around, how many people they've been around in a situation where literally every day on the news, it's like, you know, we're being taught to keep our distance from each other, which literally flies in the face of everything that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, and it's been a really interesting challenge this year to try and bridge those two things. Um, w- what I was saying earlier is encouraging people to negotiate for a sex buddy. That's pretty much what I've been doing, both with my clients and with my personal partners. Yeah. And I think the fact that I've been poly for 20 years and I've had that safe sex conversation with strangers on first and second dates so many times, it doesn't feel weird to me to have a COVID safety conversation. And so when it first became a thing here, I, I didn't work very much for a couple of weeks. And then I was only working with people who we had this, okay, what, what are your safety standards? What are your risks? What's going on? Who else is in your household? And that continued for most of the shutdown. I was able to see, I think there was six other people that were pretty much isolated on their own, you know, people that work from home for, for the last six weeks. They had hardly any exposure. So we were able to find our, to find what worked for everybody in that situation. And that's pretty much what we're still doing. It's just, it's always evolving as things are changing. The city's opening up. Yeah. I guess, you know, um, we're coming close to, to the end of an hour here. Uh, you know, and in some form or another, I've asked you various versions of this question, but if there's anything, one thing that you would want you know, our listeners to take away from this, regardless of where, you know, they stand, because I think that inevitably, right, even, you know, when I was talking to, to Sarah Vandella, like, you know, porn is stigmatized, sex work is stigmatized. What is it that you wish people like, well, if you could leave them with one sort of final message on this, what do you want them to know? Like, what would you want them to take away from this and, and 
you know, what judgments do you want them to set aside when they're listening to somebody like you talk about the work that you do? I would like them to know that there's nothing wrong with them and there's nothing wrong with what they want. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Well, I think that makes uh, a really fitting end to what has been a fascinating conversation. I feel like I could talk to you for hours uh, about this because it's just such a deep rabbit hole <laughs> with so many different layers. Uh, so as you know, uh, I would like to finish my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews here at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think their history and how they choose to integrate that and to put that back out into the world is what makes us unmistakable. Because none of us have the same experiences. And so we're all drawing from different wells. And when we draw from our own unique well, and then we're willing to put that out somewhere for people to see, I think there's, there's no way to get that mixed up with anybody else's stuff. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and sharing your story and your insights and wisdom with our listeners. Uh, where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, everything that you're up to? Uh, they can find out more about me at pleasurecentralradio.com. And if they're really curious, they can sign up for the email alerts there, and then they will see the membership communities and the types of things that I'm doing to connect people even when we can't touch. Amazing. And for everyone listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. 
We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.